0: you join your hearts and minds in prayer with me this morning. Almighty and all in God. We are here today because what you have said about us, when we didn't know what to make of who we were. when we were no people, you called us son and daughter. You called us your children. He said, we belonged to you. And you brought us into your love and into your life. And it has made for us all the difference. Finding who we are, grounded in who you are. So God, we come today to hear more words from you. To hear more words of love and belonging. We come to hear you call us to be more than what we are. We come to be challenged. We come to be transformed. So God, speak to us. Speak to our hearts and to our minds. Speak the words you brought us here to hear. And give us eyes to see you and ears to hear you. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So throughout... Uh, the last few weeks, throughout the season of Lent we 've been having our um, well part of the sermon series has been about the truth and the meaning behind the cross. and so uh, our students have been giving w- weekly readings um, that get to some of the history, some of the science behind uh, what happened on the cross at Golgotha. So Sydney is going to come up and do this week 's reading. know.
1: Hi. <laughs> okay. How someone dies of crucifixion. I know it's really sad, but I have to read it this week. Much has been written about crucifixions. Today I will give you a short summary of how someone dies after being crucified. The weight of the body pulling down on the diaphragm complicates breathing. The victim could support his weight by pushing up from the legs while simultaneously pulling up from the wrists. As the leg muscles would tire, he would have to allow his body to hang limp while struggling to breathe. This process continued until the leg muscles gave out, forcing the condemned to hang and suffocate. In some circumstances, because the process could take up to three days, an executioner needed to end the crucifixion. To do so, the soldiers would break the victim's legs by smashing the femur bones with a large, heavy mallet. This prevented the person from being able to push up from the feet to reposition the diaphragm for breathing, thus forcing them to suffocate. It is recorded in the Gospels that Jesus' legs were unbroken. He died a different death than all who were crucified next to him. The nails driven into the wrist would pierce the main nerve running through his arm, and when the victim pushed up to breathe, the wrist rotated against the nail, which would irritate the nerves and cause intense pain in the arms. (coughs) The direct exposure of the nerve to the thick slab of metal produced a constant recurring pain that had to to be endured every time the crucified person pulled up to breathe. When a victim is hung on the cross, the knees are bent at a 45 degree angle. This forces a person to sustain the weight of the body with the thigh muscles. It is painful to bend the knees and support one's weight with the thighs alone for even five minutes. Think of doing wall sits. Doing this for hours, even days, it is unimaginable. But the victim has to do it. Until the legs are fractured or become too fatigued from days of holding one's body weight, they will resist the cramping and the resulting muscle spasms to breathe. The crucifixion crosswood was not smooth and treated. Each time the victim tried to breathe by lifting himself up on those nails, the back was dragged over the splintery wood. Some victims had already been flogged like Jesus with a nine-tailed whip, so the back was already raw and exposed. Every time the condemned shifted weight from the feet to the arms and back to the feet, his raw back rubbed against the splintered wood. Jesus' initial beating alone was enough to induce the onset of hypovolemic shock. This occurs when a person loses 20% or more of the body's blood supply. The blood loss depletes the body of oxygen and prevents the heart from pumping more blood, which results in even less blood reaching the cells. The symptoms of hypovolemic shock include nausea, profuse sweating, dizziness, confusion, and a loss of consciousness. Since the body doesn't get enough oxygen while hanging on the cross, the natural physiological response is to hyperventilate. Not being able to do so, however, the heart pumps harder, trying to overcompensate for the lack of oxygen. The heart then goes into cardiac arrest, which can even cause it to rupture inside the chest cavity, sometimes symptoms of hyperventilation include fever and anxiety. Fever produces aches in the muscles. Since the muscles are already cramping and in spasm, this adds more complication to the severity of the pain. From a scientific look at Jesus's death, it is believed he died because his heart gave out first. Maybe that cardiac stress that causes the heart to rupture. Specific details reported about Jesus's execution confirm blood and water spilled from a spear wound in his side. John 19.34 reports of Jesus' death that blood and water poured from his side when he was wounded. This is an unusual detail that is atypical of death by any means, including a crucifixion. The water can be understood with modern medicine as a result of necessarily fatal wound that released clear fluid that had abnormally collected around his lungs or heart. Jesus was not merely unconscious. Jesus really died. He died for you and he died for me.
0: I think it is amazingly ironic that the central symbol of the Christian faith is the cross. People who lived during Jesus' time would never have celebrated the cross, would never have thought that the cross could become a symbol of worship. The cross was a tool of Roman imperial capital punishment. It was not just how they'd punish people they deemed threats, but it was how they would put on display the awesome power of Rome. Crucifixion was a very public way of killing someone and a very gruesome way as we heard just described. And as such, half the point of crucifixion was to show others, to show the public what happened when you crossed Rome. In the first Star Wars movie, the Empire captures Princess Leia, who is working for the rebellion. And they want her to talk, they want her to give up information on the rebellion. Where is their base? Who are their leaders? etc.? And they have this Death Star. And so what do they do in order to gently persuade Leia to give up the information she has? They use this Death Star to blow up her home planet. Spoiler alert for a movie from the 1970s. It's a show of power. It's a show of might. It's what the kids call a flex give us the information we want or we will do this to other planets. Do what we want or we will hurt and kill more people. So it was with the Romans. They crucified in order to show how powerful they were in the face of insurrection. We crucify your leader in a public way so that you, member of the rebellion, will know that there are two choices. Give up your rebellion and go home or face a similar fate. They wanted to show quite publicly that, to mix my references, resistance is futile. And here we are 2,000 years later and the cross is a symbol of power, not for the empire, but for the powerless. How is it a symbol of power? Why is it a symbol of power? How the cross went from a symbol of death and defeat to something else entirely is precisely what we are here today to discuss. Last week, we talked about different ways of talking about the meaning of the cross, different atonement motifs. Our focus last week was on how the cross was an altar and Jesus was a sacrifice. That's probably the most ubiquitous, the most well-known atonement motif. On the cross, Jesus takes the punishment that was rightly coming our way. Jesus stands in our place. Jesus is our substitute. And through Jesus' death, we are shown mercy and grace. Now some of you might rightly be wondering, wait, is there another way of looking at the cross? Jesus as sacrifice or Jesus as substitute is so ubiquitous that other motifs usually don't get as much or any play. And so we might ask, why do we need others? Isn't that just what the cross means? But different motifs are meant to emphasize different aspects of the meaning of the cross. Only going with one can have some problematic effects. Because when we only focus on one way of thinking about what happens on the cross, we can easily go to extremes. For instance, if we only talk about Jesus as a sacrifice, we might get to the point where we become afraid of God. Crucifixion, as we just heard, was a painfully horrible death. Is that really what God needed? What God demanded? How angry was God with us that he required that much violence in order to love us again? Oftentimes this ties into places in the Old Testament where God can be pretty terrifying. And so we can get to this place where Jesus saves us from God rather than Jesus saves us from sin. We aren't meant to be saved from God, we are meant to be healed and loved, and we are meant to love God through knowing and being known by God. Now this is not the general meaning of Jesus' sacrifice, but what can happen when we take it to the extremes through only looking at that one motif. So this morning I want us to look at another motif, something that can give a new layer and level of meaning to the cross. And that motif has everything to do with the symbol of punishment and death becoming a symbol of power and victory. This motif starts with the stark reality of our world. And that is that we are alive in a world oriented towards death. My oldest son, Patrick, is five years old. And while he is quite precocious, he is already aware of death. One night he asked me if I would die before he would and we talked about it and a few days later he said to me daddy I want you and me to die at the same time that way neither of us has to live without the other really sweet (laughs) I told him that I didn't want that that I wanted him to live a lot longer than me so that if he had kids he could see them grow up and maybe have his kids could have kids of their own and he could enjoy a full life then he asked if he would be sad when I died and I tried to tell him yes he would but that he'd be older and he'd be a little more emotionally able to handle it and then he got very quiet and he looked away from me and when I asked if he was okay he started to cry how quickly do we realize that not only is death a thing a fact of our existence but something that brings us deep sadness and grief and something to be avoided and something to be feared which is why capital punishment becomes the greatest punishment we can dole out in every place we reserve the death penalty for the absolute worst crimes because what can we do to someone that's worse than killing them and when you have the death penalty and want to ratchet it up further what do you do Well, you potentially do two things make the death gruesome and make it public Roman crucifixion is based on the premise that death is the worst thing we can do and a public gruesome death is the worst way to die in first Corinthians Paul describes death as an enemy it's certainly an enemy for us and Paul calls it an enemy for God to defeat and this is not purely a Christian belief there are multiple examples in popular culture about death being an enemy. Here's one. In Harry Potter, the motivating, uh, what motivates Voldemort more than anything else is a desire for immortality. He doesn't want to die. He does everything possible, commits terrible atrocities in order to ensure that he can never die. There's a popular TV show called Game of Thrones and there's a quote in that television show between two characters death is the enemy one says the first enemy and the last but we all die the other says to which the first replies the enemy always wins and we still need to fight him death as an enemy is not purely a Christian belief it is a universal human belief no matter who we are no matter where we are death is seen as an enemy to be avoided, to be resisted, to be fought, and as such we see that people who die are people who lost. What does this do for us? What does this mean for us? It means deep down we are death averse. We do everything we can to avoid death, everything we can to keep death at bay. We work and work and work in the sure hope that we might be able to get out of life alive. We fear death, we fear decay, we fear anything that reminds us of our mortality. Many atonement theories or motifs begin with the human condition. What is our basic state as humans? And go on to explain how Jesus' death on the cross saves us from that human condition. Last week we talked about Jesus being a sacrifice. Our starting point, the human condition, was that we are guilty of sin and we needed a new birth a fresh start in our relationship with God and in being our sacrifice in being our substitute Jesus made necessary restitution for us and in looking upon Jesus lifted on the cross we can see that our sins are forgiven this week our human condition is people who are oriented towards death even as we fear that death death is the final the ultimate power over us death is the enemy To answer how Jesus' death on the cross saves us from that human condition, we need to look at a piece of scripture commonly referred to as the Christ hymn. It's from Paul's letter to the Philippians in the second chapter. In your relationships with others... Uh, Sorry, with one another. In your relationships with one another, Paul writes, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Scholars believe that in Paul's letter here he is quoting a common hymn of that day, a common worship song of that day. One of the earliest hymns that highlights one of the earliest understandings of the meaning of Christ's death. It talks about Jesus sharing in God's nature and taking the form of a servant. And being a a human being, Jesus suffered death. But notice the words of the hymn. It says Jesus humbled himself to death. The way the verb functions in this sentence doesn't say, uh, makes it, sorry, With the way that the verb functions in the sentence, Jesus doesn't passively meet death like death happened to him. Instead, it's almost as if Jesus chose death. Jesus welcomed death. Jesus took death. When the Romans put Jesus on a cross, believing it was going to end his movement, they were actually playing into Jesus' hands. It's what he wanted. Which is so bizarre for us. Death is defeat. Death is losing. Death is the end. And Jesus welcomed it. Jesus humbled himself to death. He could have prevented it, but he didn't. For us who spend our time, our energy, our money trying to keep death away as long as possible, this is downright unintelligible. Someone who had the power to prevent death didn't. It simply doesn't compute. But what happens when Jesus humbles himself by becoming obedient to death is the key. What happens next is the way that God saves and redeems and atones for this particular human condition. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. God raises Jesus Christ from the dead. And in doing so, Jesus defeats death. God in Jesus Christ reveals he has power over death. God in Jesus Christ humbles himself to be, to be obedient to death because death isn't the ultimate enemy, not for our God. Because death isn't to be feared above all else. Because our God is the living God. Our God has the power of life. Our God has power over death. Our God in Jesus Christ was obedient to death Because with God, death doesn't mean defeat. Death doesn't mean it's over. Death doesn't get the last word. The last word is a word of life spoken by our God. But the hymn doesn't stop there. The hymn doesn't say, God just raised Jesus to new life. No, instead God did so much more. God exalts Jesus to the highest place. The highest place. So that at his name, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. And this works on two levels. The first is the level of history. The Caesars crucified Jesus and other political threats to show their power so that at the name of Caesar, every knee would bow. They wanted to show that Rome was the ultimate power in the world and to say to every conquered people, bend the knee, toe the line, or face the unstoppable might of Rome. When God raised Jesus from the dead, God showed that the Romans had no power The emperor had no power over God in Jesus Christ. And so what we see happen after Jesus' resurrection is a group of people who, between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, cowered in a locked room out of fear, emerged from that room determined to spread the message of Jesus' resurrection to all the world. The threat from the Romans was still there. Crucifixion was still a thing that could happen to them, and in many cases it did happen to them. But they still went anyways. Because if God can raise Jesus Christ from the dead, what can Rome do to me that God can't undo? And Christians for centuries have faced persecution, have faced imprisonment, have faced public deaths in arenas, and still refuse to bend the knee. Refuse to say anyone other than Jesus Christ was Lord, because if God can raise Jesus Christ from the dead, what power does anyone or anything have over followers of Jesus Christ? none, none whatsoever. God in Jesus Christ is the highest power in the world. (laughs) Which moves to the second point of how this functions and that is in our lives, that is in our world. You see, we don't have to operate out of a fear of death. We don't have to operate out of a fear of decay. We don't have to accept the premise that our world and our lives are oriented towards death. Death doesn't have to have power over us, because in Jesus Christ, God defeated death. God showed God's power over death. God showed us that the key of the universe, the grain of the universe, runs in the direction of those who give of themselves out of love for others. Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King Jr., Dietrich Bonhoeffer, they all gave of their lives and gave their lives in the service of love and justice. Were they failures because they didn't achieve all they wanted, instead succumbing to death before seeing their movement through? Or do we see them as heroes? Do we look at their lives and say they're beautiful because if God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, death doesn't have to mean defeat? Can we see the ways in which their lives moved with the grain of the universe? And the only way that makes sense is because in Jesus Christ, God defeated death and God defeated sin and God defeated evil. So we can oppose the things in this life, even if it costs our lives. If we didn't, lo- uh, sorry. So we can oppose things in this life, and even if it costs our lives, we don't lose because God in Jesus Christ declares us winners. God in Jesus Christ declares victory. So we're getting closer to remembering and retelling and experiencing anew the story of the cross. Remembering Jesus being tried and convicted and beaten. Retelling the stories of abuse and abandonment. And experiencing anew the suffering and the pain and the loss. But the story doesn't end there. Instead a burst of God's light erupts to obliterate the darkness of Golgotha. And God's light and God's life reveal a risen Christ in whom death is defeated and sin and power or has no power over us anymore. We are free. We are victors. What will you do with your freedom? How will you celebrate this victory? Let us pray. Almighty and all living God, oftentimes in this life, in this world, it feels like there are things that have power over us whether it is our fears and anxieties, whether it is sin, whether it is choices we have made. But you have come and you have defeated all of those things. In you we find freedom from that which holds us back. In you we find victory over the things that would seek to haunt us. Make that freedom and victory real in our lives, God. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us so powerfully that we would know that there is nothing that is holding us back from fully being the people you created us to be. Death has no power over us, God. Sin has no power over us, God. Fear and anxiety have no power over us, God. Because you have defeated them all in Jesus Christ. Help us to celebrate your victory and celebrate it by being your people in the world, witnessing to a new way of life, witnessing to the only way of life. As we approach the cross, as we approach Holy Week and Good Friday, help us to walk with Jesus. Help us to see the lengths you went to reveal your victory and on Easter Sunday shine the light of your life in our hearts in our worship and on in our world so clearly that we would give all that we are and all that we have To make this world more and more what you want it to be. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.